Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Solid Ground Church, where every week we share messages recorded during our weekly gatherings in Lewis, Delaware. If you have questions or if we can be of any help at all, please visit us on the web at solidground.church. Now, let's get to this week's message. We're going to be in Romans 8 this morning. And I'm going to start off with a little thought that comes from a book called Not Your Own uh, by Alan Noble. And he, he talks about this idea of zoocosis. Has anybody ever been to the zoo before? Everybody's been to the zoo, right? Have you been to the lion's cage? Everybody gets to go see the lions. What do the lions do? Sometimes they sleep. But if you study lions in zoos long enough, you notice that the lions pace back and forth. Right, there's actually a term for this, and they say that, that lions have this thing called zoocosis. And that's taking two words, putting them together, zoo, which you all know, and psychosis. Psychosis meaning, meaning uh, a distortion of reality. So you think about lion's cages, scientists and, and veterinarians and zookeepers, they go to great lengths, don't they, to build an environment for lions that would mimic their natural environment, but at the end of the day, it's still not good enough, right? They come up with food and schedules and caves and lairs and places and things to mimic what their life would be, but it's still not their normal environment, right? The lion still isn't out chasing its food, doing the things that it would normally do if it was in Africa where it should be. He shares this story Because that's how our lives are where we live today. We live in an environment created by people around us in Western culture that is not the true environment that we were built for. As followers of Christ, we were meant for something far different than the world around us. You've heard that phrase, we should be in the world, but not of the world. And this environment around us does not lend itself for what we were really created for as followers of Christ. You have to forgive me, I've got a little cough. It's not contagious or anything, just a little allergy stuff. So uh, bear with me, pray that I can get through. Um, So you don't have to look far. If you think about the, the designers of the world around us, you don't have to look far to realize that the distortion causes things like anxiety, um, stress, um, uh, brokenness, hurt, and so forth. So what's the way forward? How do we move forward knowing that the environment in the world we live in um, isn't what we were meant for, and it's broken? And I want to talk about this idea that we are called to live a life that's not our own. What does it mean to live a life that's not our own um, and not my own? So there's some assumptions. I think initially we might say, if I'm living for myself, that causes me to be selfish. It causes me to be uh, self-centered. It causes me to be rude to people. I think that's a pretty shallow view of what um, living a life for your own really means. So there's a few assumptions I want to start off with that um, we can talk about. If I'm living for myself, if I'm living a life on my own, um, it means a couple things. That true belonging is internal. Where I belong, what I belong to comes from me and nobody else. Nobody can tell me how to live my life or what I do. You guide your own morality. So that means everything about what's right or wrong comes from me. Or 
if we're having that assumption from you and you and you and you. You think about where this might lead, right? The focus is on your own individual happiness. If all I'm doing is to make myself happy, that's going to guide um, how I live my life in a way that can be pretty dangerous, I think. <clears throat> you owe no obedience or submission to anyone. Meaning for you is what you feel, not something to discover or recognize. Uh, no one has the ability or right to impose meaning upon you. You are responsible for meaning in your own life, and no one else can decide what love means, only what your own experience means. If you think about that, that's a pretty dangerous place for us to live, isn't it? To think that everything that exists, morality, love, meaning, all comes based on what I decide that is, if I'm my own. Thank goodness there's a bigger picture for that. <clears throat> Brother Karamazov says this, without God, everything is permitted. And we know that left to living as if we are our own means entitlement, selfishness, egotism, self-serving, insensitivity, unkindness, greed, introver introversion, opportunism, that list goes on. But that leaves us with anxiety, inadequacy, fear, and despair, if that's where we live, if that's what our focus is. It's terrifying that many, many people in our society are living this way. Modern life feels like billions and billions of people screaming at the top of their lungs, shouting, hey, here's who I am, so that everyone knows they exist and who they are. Now, interestingly enough, that sounds like social media, doesn't it? That's the, the world that we live in. Billions of people have gone before, and in a life left to our own, we will be as forgotten as maybe your great-great-grandparents, those names. So where does meaning come from? Where does purpose come from? What does that look like? How can you be sure, as you're sitting here this morning, that your life matters? Well, we have an answer for that, and that comes from Romans 8. <coughs> how, does the faith, how does faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ lead to change in real life? And, and Paul, in, in Romans, Paul in general, longed for people to hear this truth. He wanted them to live and know the gospel, and that is as true for us today as it was for people in Paul's time. So we're going to talk about three key things this morning. One is um, there's an example Two, there's a formula, and three, there's a source. So the first thing is, is there is an example. There's an example for us. Um, this example is in Christ, and this is in Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. So if you want to read along. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So there's two things for this example. First, the Bible tells us, and second, Jesus gives us an example. So the aim and purpose of the entire <coughs> life, death, and ministry of Jesus Christ was to, to give a purpose and an aim. Going back to the lion, what's the purpose of a lion, right? What's the lion's purpose? to reproduce, to go eat, and to live a life, right? And then go on. What's the purpose that Jesus had? His purpose was to come, live a life that was perfect, 
die a death that we couldn't die and point us back to the Father and come to be able to redeem us. That's the purpose of, of the life and death of Jesus Christ. What is our purpose? What is our purpose in life? Is it to make money? Is it to have a job? Is it to go to college? Is it something else? Uh, many of you know I get to serve as a principal for Delmarva Christian Schools. And uh, one of the things that we get to do is we get to help students of all ages figure out God's calling for their lives, right? Many of you are aware that today, in today's culture, there are kids as young as six, seven, and eight years old being driven uh, for sports to, to different places. I have a friend who used to drive his son for hockey from, from down around here to Philadelphia three times a week for hockey practice. That was well, four hours round trip three times a week, three or four times a week for hockey. Why would he do that? Well, he does that because there's a scholarship, a hope for a scholarship down the road, right? Well, when you think about this, why do parents want their kids to get scholarships? So they can get into a good college and get a good job, right? Why do they want their kid to have a good job? So they can make money, right? That's generally the purpose. There's a bigger purpose for us, right? I think as followers of Christ, we should be leading kids to discover what God has for them. And it might be to be an accountant or a doctor or a mechanic or in the military or any of a number of things. But that purpose is also to follow Christ and live for him, glorify him, and enjoy him. That's the bigger picture. So do we live in a culture who is making money makers or people who want to follow Christ and live for him? As followers of Christ, it should be the second along those lines. So we were created for that purpose, and that is to keep our eyes on Christ and to tune in to the Holy Spirit. There's a couple scripture passages. I'm going to roll through these pretty quickly. <clears throat> the Bible tells us the Bible tells us um, why or how um, we are not our own. Um, in Colossians 3.3, 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Right? Where, where are we? We've died to ourselves and, and our, our life is hidden with Christ. In Philippians 1, Philippians 1.21, Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Right? That's what he says. 2 Timothy 2.11, if we have died with him, we also live with him. 2 Corinthians 5.15, and he died for all, and those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. See, Jesus died for a purpose, to bring him to himself so that we can live through him, for him, and by him, right? This is an amazing truth that comes to life. But not only does the Bible tell us this, Jesus gives an example of this, and we see this in Scripture. <clears throat> One of my favorite passages, Philippians 2, says, Paul again says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If you think about it, anybody you know who's, who's gone to be with Christ, who as a follower of Christ died, went to heaven, um, if they were given the opportunity, which they don't have that opportunity, but if they were given that opportunity to leave the presence of God and, and the perfection of heaven, would they choose to come here 
Would anybody ever want to come back here? No. But the one who created it all did exactly that. He left that place to come to live a life here where he was subjected to pain and hurt and disappointment and frustration and even death. But he does that as an example for us. Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 26, 39, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That's his prayer in the garden of Gethsemane. <clears throat> Hebrews 12, one and two, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us, um, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, right? So we look to him for that. Just a reminder, in this passage in Romans uh, 8, 3, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us, not by us. Jesus is the one who, who satisfies all the requirements of the law for us. So it's done in us through Christ, through the Holy Spirit. It's not by us. We don't have to do this laundry list of things to earn or deserve what we get in Christ. It's, it's done in us, not by us. So as we think of how do we look, there's an example for us. And we talk about the lion and zucosis. If you want to look to a lion, look to the lion of Judah. Jesus was the one who was the example for us. The Bible tells us and Jesus shows us. Number two, there's a formula that we see here in this passage. <clears throat> it says that we should mind the things of the Spirit. Verse five says this. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So if you know math or logic, A plus B equals C, and D plus E equals F, right? Pretty simple math, pretty simple logic. There's this formula. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, okay? So if you, if you do this, you're gonna get this. For those who set your mind on the spirit, you're gonna get the things of the spirit. So where does your mind go to? There's a simple formula here. <clears throat> Basically, what he's saying is we are to be preoccupied. What does it mean to be preoccupied? To to constantly be thinking of something, right? Maybe some of you are preoccupied this morning. There's something on your mind. I know sometimes that's the case for me. Um, we are to be preoccupied with our standing in Christ. We are to drill into our minds and our hearts his love and adoption of us. It means to never forget, to never forget our privileged standing with him and the fact that we are loved and this should dominate our thinking, our perspective, and therefore our words and our actions. Uh, a few years ago, I had the privilege to go to Cuba uh, with a group of pastors back at the time where it was a little bit easier to get to Cuba than it is today. And um, I, I think I had a preset uh, idea of what life in Cuba for the church was. And my, my thought um, wound up being a lot different than what was really happening on the ground in Cuba. In the last, there's, there's 10 million people who live in Cuba. 
in the last 10 to 15 years, over a million Cubans have come to faith in Christ as, as followers of Christ. And there's lots of reasons for that, um, primarily because God's at work in Cuba. And one of the things that really struck me is that the Cuban church, the, the followers of Jesus in Cuba, live a life of devotion to Jesus in a way that's much different than, than in the American church. And, and I don't share this to, to point fingers at anybody sitting here. Really, it comes back to me as well. Um, just the conviction that I had in watching the Cuban church. We walked into a church in downtown Havana. Um, it was during a special time of year. <clears throat> and imagine a church in, in, in Havana, old, built 150 years ago, uh, no air conditioning, hot. The church was really built for about 500 people. And imagine 1,000 to 1,200 people literally hanging off of balconies, sitting and standing everywhere they could and worshiping at the top of their lungs. I mean, willing to, to withstand the 85-degree outdoor temperature inside a church that was probably over 100 degrees, and they were glad to be there. People who pray, who pray incessantly, pray over and over and over. We met with a pastor, and we went to his little house, and uh, we went to his, his cupboard, and, and he showed us his refrigerator. You imagine the, that bachelor pad refrigerator with a, like a bottle of ketchup and, and some mustard and, and maybe a rotting apple or something. There wasn't even that. Nothing, like literally bare cupboard. There was no food in this pastor's house for he, his wife, and his family. And every morning, they get up, and here's how they pray. Lord, you know that we love you, and we know that you love us, and we trust that you're going to provide for us today. And every day, one way or the other, food arrives. They pray that way. They worship that way. They pray that way. They also evangelize. This is a group of people that gets up on Saturday mornings. They go out into the country. They, they load up a bus, and they get dropped off every mile. So somebody gets dropped off, and they get dropped off at 6 a.m. They hike up into the countryside to go to different villages and places to share the gospel with people who don't know Jesus. And they spend 12, 14 hours a day, and the bus picks them up that night. <coughs> These are people who have their mind their heart and their lives set on, on following Christ and living and trusting in his spirit <coughs> daily. Really just, they are preoccupied with who they are in Christ. So we all mind something, right? Whatever preoccupies our mind controls our lives. And there's a brokenness and sense of dislocation that are experienced in this life by those who have their minds set on what the sinful nature desires. <clears throat> if we put our mind on the sinful nature, we're going to follow that broken path, that brokenness down a road that comes to despair and anxiety and frustration. The sinful mind is hostile to God. That's what verse 8 says. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The mind is not neutral ground. We cannot love one preoccupation without rejecting another. If I have my, my heart and my mind set on one thing, it's really difficult for me to have my heart and mind set on something else. So there's, there's this dichotomy. There's this thing that's, that splits our devotion and our desires. That hostility makes us incapable of pleasing God. <clears throat> Imagine it this way. Imagine a nation who has a rebellion. 
And in that rebellion, there's, there's an army. And in that army, there's a soldier. And that soldier takes good care of his uniform, and he's on time. He studies all the things he needs to do for his, for his duties. He keeps his weapons ready, and he does a great job as being a soldier in the rebellion. Do you think the leaders of the nation are happy about how good that soldier is in the rebellion? That's how it is with God. If we follow sin and keep our minds and hearts on sin, then we're no different than that soldier in that rebellion because we're rebelling against the one who has proper authority over us. <clears throat> so we're called to mind the Spirit as followers of Christ. How do we live in accordance with the Spirit? We have our minds set on what the Spirit desires. We know the things that the Spirit desires, right? The connection between living and thinking is a close one. So what we put our minds set to is what the rest of our, our lives is about. We set our minds to studying scripture, to being in the word, to being here on a Sunday morning, uh, worshiping together, and being filled with the things of the spirit. We are to be preoccupied in our standing with Christ. We are to drill into our minds and hearts his love and adoption of us, to be reminded of that. It's easy for us to get caught up in bank accounts and struggles with work and sickness and all the things that we deal with. And those are real. Those are real things. But our first love, our devotion, our heart needs to be set on him. And it means to never forget our privileged standing or the fact that we are loved and to let this dominate our thinking. So when you are tempted to think about those struggles or hurts or, or that brokenness, be reminded, even if it's just this morning, that you are loved deeply. You are cared for and provided for, and you mean something incredible to the Lord who created the universe. The final thought is that there's a source. There's a source to all of this. <clears throat> and that source is the Holy Spirit. In verse 11, it says that the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. See, as followers of Christ, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. And that's what scripture says. As followers of Christ, the spirit of God dwells in us. Now, let's be honest. Each of us knows our limitations, right? We're limited physically. If I asked you to do 10 push-ups, you could do 10 push-ups. But if I asked you to do 1,000 push-ups today, Maybe there's a couple of you that could do that. But if I asked you to do 10,000 or 100,000 push-ups, you couldn't do it. You're limited. If I asked you to pick up your chair, you could do that. If I asked you to pick up the car outside, you couldn't do that. You're limited physically. You're also limited emotionally, right? You can only have so many relationships with people and be tied to so many people emotionally, right? Think about that. For some people, that might be 10 or 20 people. That's really hard when, you're, when you have relationships. I find it pretty difficult to get past two or three, <laughs> right? I'm married and I have three kids. You get beyond those four people in my life, it gets hard. Emotions can be tough. So we're limited emotionally, we're limited relationally, and we're limited spiritually. We can only do so much in those areas. There's a great book called Margin um, written by a doctor, Christian doctor, that talks about those particular things. <clears throat> 
But because we're limited, we can only do so much. We're, we're sort of powerless. And there's an example. Again, I mentioned that um, I work at our school, and I, I have a dry erase board in my office. And on that dry erase board, I have every person that works on our staff on there. And it's just a reminder for me to pray for them. And uh, I don't pray for them every day, but I pray for them often. And I used to pray a particular way. <laughs> when I first started in the role, I would pray, Lord, I thank you for everyone. Give them strength. Uh, they're dealing with kids. Help, help them to do all the things they got to do. But I would also pray because there's really this incredible, amazing staff at our school. They're, they really are. They're so good. Uh, and I'm just, it's God who's brought them there. And I used to pray, Lord, don't let me mess this up. Don't let me mess up this thing that's happening here. And it wasn't like this booming voice, but there was this thought that, that permeated every time I prayed that way. And it was, Drew, you're not that powerful. You're not that powerful to mess up what I'm doing. Let me do the work, right? That's the power of the Spirit. And he's at work in each of your lives and in each of your places in amazing ways. <clears throat> if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, Think about this. He who raised Jesus from the dead, he has the power to raise Jesus from the dead, to bring life from death. He'll give you life, or give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. For the last, what, six months? How long has it been, Josh? We've been hearing about the power of the spirit, right? The work of the spirit, the gifts of the spirit. You think about the other roles of the Spirit, not just providing gifts, but he is our advocate. He is our helper. He indwells in us. He does all these things. He is at work in you. The power that you have to live this life for him, in him, and through him is because of him. You can't do that on your own. Another one of my favorite passages, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Wow, what a picture. So a couple of reminders. Our hope is in the work of Christ and the power of the Spirit. That's our hope, is what God has already done for us. There's this, this um, picture of hope that I heard a few months ago. Uh, it's about some experiments that happened with rats in swimming. Um, there were some rats that were put into uh, some water, and they timed how long the rats would swim before they would no longer be able to swim. And given to their own, it was a short amount of time, maybe a few hours. <coughs> the people running the experiment wanted to see if, if the rats had a hope, how much longer could they swim? And so what they would do is they would do some things. They would stroke the rats. They would encourage the rats. They would give the rats some food and then put them, they'd let them swim for a little bit do the encouragement stuff, and then put them back in the water. And in my mind, they, you know, I would think, all right, they'd swim for another hour or two or, or four or five more hours. With the hope that rats had, and this is all documented. I actually went back and studied the, the article that was written about this because I didn't believe it myself. Um, the rats swam for days, four and five days, because of the hope that they had. How much more do we get to live as followers of Christ with knowing that the hope that the God of the universe who created us, died for us, and rescued us and saved us is at work in us 
to, to use us for a purpose. So we get to swim and swim and swim. Our hope isn't in our ability to swim. I can only swim for so much, right? Our hope is in the one who created the oceans for which they surround us and where we live and the environment. So by faith, we live in the spirit. We trust him, we rely on him, and we keep our eyes on him. And unlike the lion who paces back and forth in his cage, we were meant for so much more to go out, to pray, to love, to serve, to encourage, to worship, and to enjoy God. Will you bow with me as we pray? Father, we thank you. We thank you for this gift that you've given us of life and life in you, a life where you provide, you move, and uh, you create purpose. God, thank you for... um, Thank you for this gift. Thank you for Jesus. I thank you for your spirit at work in us. And uh, we do, we lay down our lives and we say we are not our own, but we belong to you. Use us collectively uh, for your glory, for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.